0: on the histories and societies of the US, France, and Japan. He's the author of three books, including most recently, Confronting Radical Intimidation and Public Bullying, A Citizen's Guide for the Trump Era and Beyond, which will be the basis, I think, of today's talk, and which we have copies of in the back. Um, And um, Families in Jeopardy, Regulating the Social Body in France, 1750 to 1910. Uh, Professor Reed is also co-editor with Sharon Tarwik of Doing Science and Culture and author of Globalizing Tobacco Control, Anti-Smoking Campaigns in California, France, and Japan. His latest writing has been on trauma, daily life, and the culture of intimidation and bullying in the United States and Europe. And his essays have appeared in Topia, Canadian Journal of Cultural Studies, Black Renaissance Noir, the French journal Esprit, Contemporary Sociology, and the anthology Science and Emotions After 1945, a Transatlantic Perspective from UChicago in 2014. He hosts a personal blog called Unsafe Thoughts on Bullying, Education, and the Fluidity of Politics in Dangerous Times. He is a member of the San Francisco chapter of Invisible. Professor reads Indivisible. <laughs> 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 Professor reads <laughs> Professor Reed's talk today is entitled Confronting Political Intimidation and Public Bullying, Affect and Activism in the Trump Era and Beyond. So please join me in welcoming Professor Karate Creed. Thank you.
1: Thank you Hunter for the kind introduction. Um, I've had deep and long-standing ties with Santa Cruz and UC Santa Cruz but, and I see many familiar faces in this room but it, I believe it's the first time I've actually uh, screwed up the courage to uh, deliver a paper to this august body. So, um, so um, let me just, um, uh, so I'm delighted to be here and I hope what I have to say will be of interest. So I'd like to start quickly with several quotes that frame my, some of my thoughts and have framed my thoughts for for years. Uh, First is one by Brian Misumi, um, a bit on the affective environment that perhaps we are all experiencing. It reads, have fear producing mechanisms become so separate, uh, I'm sorry, so pervasive and invasive that we can no longer separate ourselves from our fear. If they have, Is fear still fundamentally an emotion, a personal experience or is it part of what constitutes the collective ground of possible experience? The second quote is from Michel Foucault, very short and has something to do with the unsettled nature of politics and social struggle, The work is never done. It reads, my point is not that everything is bad but that everything is dangerous which is not the same as bad. If everything is dangerous, then we always have something to do." Third quote, it's much more recent from Senator Elizabeth Warren. And it's, uh, in my view, an interesting uh, take on the failure of political institutions and how it's up to us to do something about it. It reads, that's why this moment in history is so important. That's why this group is so important. That's why every one of the people out here is so important. The real question uh, on the line today is can democracy survive this? Can democracy fight back? Our only chance now really it's us. That's what we are down to here. And these words were spoken at the Joyous Persistence event in San Francisco last June. Today, I want to talk about how political intimidation and public bullying have transformed national life in the United States over the last 30 years. And how this harsh environment constitutes a direct challenge to citizens and residents, especially those seeking to engage in activism and electoral politics now and in the years to come. My book published in September on this subject was prompted by Donald Trump's ascent to the White House but its roots go back to essays. I wrote at the close of the George W. Bush years and beginning of the Obama era in 2008 and 2009. After living for more than seven years under the war on terror and cycles of economic bubbles and busts that hurt many and benefited the privileged few. My thinking has been in conversation with the work of Etienne Balibar on citizenship, globalization, extreme violence and the state. Wendy Brown's deep inquiry into the political subject of neoliberalism's de-democratization, also Judith Butler's and Brian Masumi's respective writings on lawless sovereignty, indefinite detention, and the effective politics of preemption in the endless war on terror, and Corey Robbins' book on fear as an operative concept in the liberal political tradition. I'm also in dialogue with the literature on everyday suffering, trauma, and bullying, especially published in Europe by writers such such as Axel Honneth, Marie-France Irrigoyenne, Didier Fassin, and Richard Reckman. uh, The latter two um, have developed an interesting anthropology of common sense, they call it. Much of this research belongs to what has been called the effective or emotional turn in the humanities and social sciences. This literature details how repeated bullying, intimidation, and emotional abuse can undermine a target or victim's sense of personhood and identity, causing them to lose not only control over their self-representation, but even their capacity to enjoy relationships, pursue their studies or, and, and training, work productively, have effective voice in public discourse, or participate in politics. This is what has captured the attention of both scholars and the general public in the US and other countries and helped make it such a mobilizing social problem. Harsh climate. Since the kickoff in 2015 of the last presidential campaign, a climate of fear and intimidation has dominated national life in the United States to a degree not seen in some time, poisoning our politics and reaching into our very relationships with friends, co-workers, and neighbors. It has taken an emotional toll on many of us that perhaps is worth analyzing in greater depth as a political problem. Fear and dread proliferate and paralyze. At their most powerful, they shape uh, people's political responses, provoking blind panic, and in some cases, violence. I want to explore how this harsh climate came to be, how we can see ourselves through it, but also why it is not likely to go away anytime soon. In particular, I want to look at how this forbidding public environment works at the level of affect. The dangers, imitation, and bullying present, the snares and traps that envelop their targets, and perhaps the lessons to be learned. In the end, it's about shedding light on the dark side Mm -hmm. of contemporary politics in order to see beyond it. Traumatic lessons, CEO Trump's hostile takeover and the counter-revolution. Twelve months on, we're still in the midst of a far-right counter-revolution in Washington to remake the federal government as we have known it for the last 80 years. Even as it has shown signs of faltering and doesn't achieve all of its most ambitious goals, it will remain a powerful political force to be reckoned with in the years to come. Those who naively hoped that Trump would mature and grow into the office under the pressures of daily governance and that he would delegate policy making to experienced beltway politicians and experts now know better. Trump, ever the aggressive entrepreneur and domineering boss from from day one in the White House has treated the federal government like a privately held company of which he is sole owner and CEO thus lending a new twist to the expression privatization. We are living (laughs) literally we are living the aftermath of a hostile takeover of the federal government by a corporate raider who is now bent on restructuring his latest acquisition as many commentators, commentators have noted among many things the 2016 elections can be seen as the expression of voters fears and grievances stemming from the interplay of economic and non-economic humiliations and indignities encountered in li- living daily life under a globalized market economy including contending with stagnant household wages since the 1970s, and also, much less cited, a point to which I'll return, under 16 years of the war on terror. Moreover, the campaign involved unprecedented acts of intimidation committed by the eventual victor against his opponent, threatening her with incarceration if he was elected or with assassination by the Second Amendment people should she win. Just as crucially, it is important to remember that the presidential election took place in a public climate of uncontrolled violence. As the United States witnessed acts of domestic terrorism and mass shootings, brutal treatment by private security contractors of Navi- Native American protesters at Standing Rock, North Dakota, and a wave of video recordings of unprovoked police killings of African American men. Finally, it must be said, the primaries and general election constituted a traumatic lesson to forgetful democratic politicians of the power of right wing intimidation and violence to affect the outcome of election campaigns. They were a reminder that threats and fear mongering are not occasional excesses of contemporary right wing politics and policies, but an integral part of them. So in my view, it would be a mistake to ignore the violent forces and tactics that have carried Trump to the White House and to overpersonalize what are consequential political changes in our culture as media outlets and politicians seem to be doing. Driven by commercial imperatives and short-sighted politics respectively, the mainstream media and many liberal and progressive politicians have focused overwhelmingly on Trump's dysfunctional personality, his will for ignorance <coughs> of policy, his shameless corruption, and possible collusion with foreign powers. However, to echo the French philosopher Jean-Paul Sartre, Trump may be a violent narcissist, but not every violent narcissist can become Trump, the CEO (laughs) folk hero, Republican nominee and President of the United States. He has been borne along by and exploited in turn forces larger than himself that will outlast him once he has departed office main argument I want to argue that Trump's successful candidacy represents the mainstreaming and legitimization of violent forces and political tactics that preceded his election and will endure even after he is gone and the Republicans lose their congressional majorities he has unleashed frightening public dynamics that have been slowly building for some time and inflaming public life At the core of this political history, I argue, is a wider US public culture of intimidation and bullying. This culture emerged in its current form in the workplace, media, and the political arena when globalization first began and the economy underwent financialization as it fell under the sway of Wall Street and the banking sector in the 1980s. So it is not by chance that we have today an openly violent president who is also an abusive CEO freewheeling entrepreneur and internet troll. American businesses may be centers of innovation, but they are not leaders in promoting democratic values and respectful citizenship. Trump's powerful melding of racist and misogynistic content with his aggressive entrepreneurialism and abusive management style was the hallmark of his campaign. His unabashed pro-business stance and belligerent sense of political entitlement both domestically and internationally, are what connects Trumpism to the Republican Party. It is a peculiarly American free market version of populism that sets it off as a political movement from most contemporary right-wing populisms in other countries. One possible exception being perhaps Berlusconi in Italy. Trump's populist genius then has has been at once to personify all that unfettered capitalism promises and to lead a revolt against all its disappointments in the name of those very same promises. He is the bullying CEO and white entrepreneur as capitalist folk hero. All this is important information, information in my view, about the sources of contemporary political intimidation and public bullying. The conservative cult of individual success and fulfillment wedded to aggressive entrepreneurship, unregulated markets, and small government, is alive and well. Combined with the promotion of the business firm as a model of political rule, it constitutes a political current that feeds Trump's violent white nationalism and much of the Republican agenda and will nourish other right-wing politicians and programs in the foreseeable future. Intimidation and fear-mongering, now amplified by the endless opportunities for cyberbullying afforded by social media have become part of the very substance of the administration's politics. These are all very deeply compelling social and effective aspects of contemporary US capitalist society that are driving our political life. In this I depart from some progressive commentators who see US conservatism as an ideologically bankrupt movement and thus a spent political force with Trump's victory representing not only this movement's climax, but also its death throat. Rather, I want to argue that these currents have created a pervasive right-wing culture of intimidation that, let me repeat, will persist beyond the current administration. It is no transient phenomenon. This culture of bullying and fear, moreover, has succeeded in linking effectively some of our most subjective individual experiences with those of collective life itself. We progressives and liberals, in my view, have been slow to integrate into our thinking and strategies this dark political information. Until we do, we will be taken by surprise again and again by the links to which the right-wing regime in Washington and in state houses will go to achieve its goals and how such political violence and bullying can create its own momentum, transforming an entire political party And here I'm thinking of the fact that 86% of registered Republicans now uh, support Trump, uh, which is back to where it was uh, on the day of his inauguration, practically, and which, under the right circumstances, this uh, political violence can even rewrite the very script of how politics in a democracy is conducted. Taking political violence seriously. My talk today then proposes taking seriously political violence in the form of verbal and nonverbal intimidation and public bullying. A year after Trump's inauguration, with the exception of foreign meddling in the last election, it is striking to me how progressive and liberal pundits, commentators, and politicians often conduct themselves (coughs) as if they are not interested in taking the full measure of the destructive methods of their opponents, or worse, if they are looking for reasons not to take political violence seriously perhaps in the hope that it will cease or go away, much in the way of an abused partner or spouse who pleads, oh, honey, you really didn't mean it, did you? But of course, honey did mean it, (laughs) or rather sees no reason to stop and can't help him or herself from philandering, excessive drinking, physical violence, verbal abuse, psychological harassment, and so forth. And we'll do it again. And again, one of the goals of last year's massive January 21st Women's March was to disabuse Democratic Party leaders of that illusion. My hope is that a clearer picture of how this political violence works will help diminish the terror of the present moment and encourage a continuing and lucid and steadfast activism. Writing about another source of considerable collective anxiety, the struggle against global warming, Geographer Matthew Spark makes this point eloquently, and I quote, false hopes and groundless fears can be of dreadful, deadly consequences, and yet justified fears, when combined with sensible hopes, can open new possibilities and thereby help mobilize change for the better, close quote. In the end, it's all about being effective as the women's march, the response to the Muslim ban, and last year's raucous congressional town halls have taught us, as has the activism of groups like Black Lives Matter, Swing Left, Sister District Project, and Indivisible 6,000 chapters nationwide. I now would like to read a passage from the book that attempts to dramatize the effective link between personal and collective experience that many of us are now living on a daily basis and the current political climate. We think we know who they are. They cut you off on the highway, they taunt you to your face, mock you behind your back, smirk at you from the TV screen, standing always beyond reach. They are everywhere and anywhere, from the schoolyard to the boardroom, the office cubicle to your local bar. They come unbidden, visiting violence upon the unsuspecting and the fearful alike. They now lurk even in your pocket wherever you go, and you can feel the buzz as trolls spew 140-character poison to anyone and everyone. Even at home, you can't get away from the pervasive climate of intimidation and disrespect. You turn on your TV or laptop, and there they are, injecting venom and fear through old and new media. Requiring little or no provocation, they are poised to strike at the first sign of weakness or (coughs) courage. for they tolerate no one, no one but their own kind, belligerent aggressors ready to declare who's fit to speak, to listen, and to submit. The violence, the intimidation. You think you're ready. Perhaps you've experienced it before, but still, when it happens, especially to you, your person, your body, the body politic, its sheer power, speed, and intensity bypass whatever defenses you have. From the edges of consciousness, the aggressors rush up, attacking and screaming to your face, you're nothing but scum, a liberal, a feminist, a Muslim, a self-hating Jew, an immigrant, a Bernie bro, a Putin stooge, a nasty woman, a faggot, a loser. Bewildered, we're thrown off balance. We can't believe it's happening. Be it again or for the first time, it seems to make no difference. The hormonal response wells up, fight or flight, but it's already too late. Something has slipped (coughs) under our skin and taken over. Disoriented and at a loss for words, we have the creeping realization that whatever our sense of self was before, we can never quite retrieve it again. Thanks to bullying, we find ourselves forced into a life divided between what we are or rather what we have become, and a former sovereign self that the bullies have persuaded us we've lost. Something or someone has intruded, and violently so, and changed us. Our self-representation has been wrested away, and we are, as it were, beyond our own reach. Something else is there, intimately there, a power and a weakness that we can't control. From now on, we we lead a compromised existence. Captive of our potential weakness and the aggressor's potential violence, we have entered into the infinite fearful regress, in fact, of future threat. If there wasn't a relationship before, there is one now, unbreakable, even as it breaks us. If our sense of humiliation is severe enough, we respond by reasserting ourselves through bullying others in turn or in the case of the extreme distress of isolated young U.S. males consumed with self-loathing, taking a gun and shooting down teachers and students in classrooms and hallways before dispatching their abject selves to oblivion. With bullying, the unthinkable has happened, and we feel betrayed by both the aggressors and ourselves. How did they dare, and how did I let it happen? And those are two questions that this book is my attempt to to try to answer. Questions. To answer these questions and to get at today's topic of affect and activism in the Trump era, I want to work through with you some related issues in question, other questions. First, what is political bullying versus other kinds of ordinary everyday bullying? Most of us have an idea of what ordinary bullying is, but bullying is a slippery term, and can be somewhat difficult. We are perhaps more familiar with bullying in the context of K through 12, primary and secondary education. It usually involved an act of preemptive aggression, often from an unexpected source, creating a sense of violation and betrayal, as in best of friends, or rather former best friends who bully each other rather viciously. It often mocks the victim in terms of a stigmatized identity, nonconformity with social norms, taking remarks out of context, ostracization, guilt by association, and passive rumor mongering as in the phrase, I hear that, or so I'm told. The goal is to paralyze, humiliate, and isolate the target. It often takes place out of earshot and sight of others, but if done in public, if it is witnessed and recorded, that adds a particular edge. In the realm of politics, of course, it is recorded and publicized by the media. And here, appearances are, are of course, everything. Conventionally, bullying was understood to be an unfortunate experience in the childhood, and the school cafeteria, locker room, and schoolyard, but its effects did not extend beyond childhood. It was confined, so it was understood, to a stage of development. To a tearful child the response often was, you'll, you'll get over it, you'll go out of it. It was something you could leave behind. Twenty-five years ago, however, this began to change in U.S. public discourse in terms of viewing bullying, especially repeated bullying, as a disabling trauma that prevents the child from attending school, focusing on her or his studies, graduating, and moving on in their lives. As such, it became a policy issue and object of expert study. This shift represented an early example of the extension of the notion of psychic trauma from spectacular events, war, accidents and so on and so forth, to everyday interactions. From there, bullying as an issue of public concern began to migrate to other arenas of public life such as the workplace, the media and politics. So how are political intimidation and public de- bullying different from everyday bullying? Actually, they share quite a bit. Like ordinary bullying, political bullying engages in preemptive violence to throw the other party off balance. creates an Im- but It creates an impression of weakness, which in a harsh political climate that operates as a gladiatorial theater of dominance can be fatal. As Judith Butler would say, the sign of her or his indurability becomes his or her truth. They also share a preferred method, attacks on an individual or group's character or motive. Now, why focus on someone's character or motive? Because if allegations about motive or character are hard to prove, they're even harder to disprove and very hard to counter, especially in a public environment characterized by cheap cynicism and speculative Mm -hmm. hearsay. They bypass the accountability of factual discourse. Outlandish allegations have the advantage of seizing the initiative, setting the agenda, and dominating the news cycle. By virtue of their speed and power, they overcome our capacity for reflective thought and seize the nervous system, creating affective facts on the ground. And by that I mean the the victim's responses, but also ours as witnesses and the media's and these effective facts on the ground put the target on the defensive and the rest of us on notice often leaving the victim with no choice but to respond. The more public the assault the more difficult it is to remain silent. Such intrusive attacks in my view create an appearance not only of personal weakness but of potential weakness. From then on to borrow a phrase from Walter Benjamin uh, some, um, in his writings on the state of emergency, here every possibility becomes a fact. The target finds him or herself subject to a level of unwanted scrutiny including that of body language, verbal utterances and so forth in the form of public speculation that casts a cloud over any future words or actions. Finally. They are acts of power that take the politics out of politics. Whatever issues or policies a candidate may have, their stances, their ambitions for themselves, and so forth. And obscure not only the issues, but even questions of power power themselves in favor of endless speculation about a candidate's character and motive. The second question is, are political intimidation and bullying worse now? Now, in politics, bad behavior is obviously nothing new. It's a rough and tumble arena and is not about being polite. Far from it. What is new in my view are two things. First, the sheer virulence of political campaigns. One has to cast one's mind back only to only thirty years to the 1988 Woolie Horton racist attack ad that helped destroy Michael Dukaku's presidential campaign. And for those of you who don't know, it involved an ad um, featuring the case of a furloughed felon who, while out of prison, committed a rape or a murder. or you uh, also can, uh, to think uh, as recently as 2002 and 2004, the smearing of the honor of decorated military veterans like John Kerry, Max Cleland, a triple amputee, no less, and John McCain, and this at a ta- in a time of war. I mean, this is, you know, quite, quite extraordinary. Or more consequentially, uh, the 2000 presidential elections that witnessed the physical intimidation of Florida poll workers as they recounted ballots, those famous hanging chads, that was part of a nationally orchestrated effort that succeeded in putting George Bush in the White House. In White House. Already at that time, <coughs> political intimidation and public bullying had begun to make significant inroads into our national life outside of the narrow confines of election cycles. One only has to think of the impe- impeachment of Bill Clinton in 1999 and the unprecedented shutdown of the federal government in 1995, four years earlier, by radical Republicans led by Newt Gingrich. And before that, the outlandish public smearing of newly arrived First Lady Hillary Rodham launched in 1993 that targeted her for her feminist stances. And closer to the present but before the 2016 elections were the calls in January 2009 by TV hosts Glenn Beck and Lou Dobbs for armed insurrection to oppose the Obama administration. The appearance, uh, also there was the appearance of protesters with loaded weapons and Tea Party rallies in 2010. These rallies were staged against the Affordable Care Act very close to Obama's own town halls Promoting that piece of legislation. And then finally, the assassination attempt against a staunch congressional defender of the ACA, Congresswoman Gabrielle Giffords, in January two thousand eleven, that left her severely wounded and six others dead. Also around that time was the beginnings of the birther movement, as we all know, questioning Obama's nationality. Second, what is also new is that everyday bullying, has merged with intimidation and public bullying. Formerly the two were separate. It took different, it took place in different times and so on and so forth. Public bullying was largely confined to the US election cycle. And what public bullying took place between politicians, uh, it was behind closed doors in the hallways and offices of state houses and and so forth, but not in public view. That is no longer the case. They, the two, kinds of bullying, everyday ordinary bullying and political intimidation and public bullying have converged and melded in my opinion. How did this come about? To begin with, I want to highlight something uh, again mentioned earlier but really not discussed by mainstream pundits, commentators and politicians. Our national experience of living for 16 years in the war on on terror. This is quite extraordinary especially when you think about the narrowing and coarsening of national life and public debate that takes place during any wartime. In my view, a tipping point was reached in nine, uh, with 9-11, the build-up to the Iraq war and the fictive um, weapons of uh, mass destruction and the prosecution of the war on terror itself. At that time, the US launched violent experiments in extreme deregulation and privatization and lawless sovereignty both abroad and at home. At that time domestically authorities regularly engaged in fear mongering those politically expedient bogus code orange alerts if you remember based on outdated or or even incorrect intelligence and intimidation such as questioning the loyalty and patriotism of those who insisted on the rule of law, constitutional protections, due process and the Geneva Conventions. Thus began under George Bush the process of converting the traditional punctual activity of campaigning involving intimidation and bullying in election cycles into a veritable regime of counterfactual felt politics of everyday governing, which Trump and the Republican (coughs) leadership have completed today, thanks in part to the direct access to citizens and residents afforded them by social media. So you have campaigning has now become governing, right? And along with it, those forms of political intimidation and public bullying. Political intimidation now happens every day and, is, and, is vastly ex- and it's vastly expanded effective reach and power have exacted a real emotional toll on many. Also largely omitted in public discussion of the current harsh political climate is what I call the revolution in the limits of acceptable public speech and behavior that started in the 1980s in the wider culture, especially in the media and the workplace. Regarding the media, I will speak only briefly since it is more commonly a subject of discussion than the workplace. Now, in the 1970s and early 80s, a new tone and style of public discourse broke through over the airways. Part and parcel of the exploding culture wars and exploiting the fracturing of national media audiences afforded by the rise of cable TV, AM radio and cable TV talk shows arose provoking and channeling audience pent-up male rage against alternately people of color liberals feminists leftists queers welfare recipients and immigrants smashing the last remnants of the respectful speech of the old broadcast media the mainstreaming of public expressions of hate was well underway perhaps even more insidious were the reality tv shows beginning with the american version of survivor and later on, The Apprentice and American Idol that staged extreme competition between participants and cruel theaters of humiliation. Talk shows and reality TV's revolution in acceptable public speech arguably laid the groundwork for the cyberbullying that would explode with the rise of social media 20 years later. Parenthetically, I would like to add to this account one other point underscored by Kianga Yamada Taylor in her book, From Black Lives Matter to Black Liberation namely that the resurgence of racist and other public expressions of demeaning political speech is also due to the decline of the social movements that transformed U.S. public discourse in the 1950s, 60s, and 70s. Until about two months ago, there has been little or no discussion of the U.S. workplace and its contribution to nourishing and legitimating disrespectful and demeaning public behavior. I am referring of course to the Me Too movement. In the 1980s it was also ground zero, Uh, the workplace was also, was ground zero for the revolution in public speech and behavior. At that time the Federal Reserve's imposition of record high interest rates and the resulting vocal recession between 1980 and 1982 led to a massive transformation of the U.S. workplace, first in large corporations and later in the public sector. The U.S. witnessed the resurgence and dominance of the financial sector, first time since the 1920s, that put enormous pressure on U.S. companies to produce unheard of high profits, the so-called 20% return. This led to the go-go 80s and its wave of corporate mergers, downsizing, cutting of wages, factory closings and relocations to the south and outside of the U.S., It also led to the radical harshening of the old military and command model of, of, um, excuse me, military and command command and control uh, management practices of CEOs who had to make such hard decisions and were lauded by the business press for doing so. During the 1980s and 90s, every five years or so, Fortune Magazine and Business Week regularly published a list of America's 10 toughest bosses. What was their management style? It was manipulative, abusive, arbitrary, and vindictive, and to the delight of the press, often colorful and quirky. There arose a veritable cult of the bullying boss, in, uh, boss who enjoyed nicknames such as Chainsaw, Old Blood and Guts, Rambo in Pinstripes, Jack the Ripper, Prince of Darkness, and so on. Women employees, however, less impressed by this male personality type came up with one of their own, BSD or Big Swinging Dick. Thus a new American folk hero was born who was afforded every indulgence and every reprieve. Some of the earliest names included Donald Rumsfeld of Cyril Pharmaceuticals, Steve Jobs of Next Computing, Andrew Grove of Intel, Jack Welch of General Electric, Carl Icahn of TWA, but last but, not least, last but not least, Harvey and Bob Weinstein of Miramax Films. 30 years later, many of these names are still with us and so is their management style. This is the corporate environment from which Trump comes. And I might add, an environment in which gropers continue to thrive and sexual aggressors enjoy the greatest immunity. I want to argue that over the last 30 years there's been a convergence in the wider culture of these different arenas of life, school, media, (laughs) workplace and politics that has led to what I call a generalized culture of public intimidation and bullying with its legions of petty tyrannical sovereigns to cite Judith Butler. The example and achieved legitimacy of behaviors in one arena can have the effect of authorizing analogous conduct in other domains of civil society and thereby place um, or produce a reciprocal legitimation of like practices and actions and a period of considerable collective anxiety. (laughs) Put another way they've reached a tipping point in which the practice and spectacle of aggressive behaviors and speech um, have become self-reinforcing. I would now like to flesh out a bit more how political intimidation and public bullying work. In a media-saturated world, the element of surprise is crucial. It bespeaks power, creates a buzz. Crucial to this are also aggressive timing, 3 a.m. in the morning when a category 4 hurricane is coming on shore for example, unexpected locations and occasions, the the G20 (coughs) conference, the Boy Scouts jamboree, what have you. Um, Also speed, speed, volume and reach of delivery, uh, news outlets, organize talking points, unleashing internet bots, deploying armies of trolls, so on and so forth, and as I've said before, extreme content or actions. In politics, preemptive public attacks like these destabilize and intimidate opponents by making violently clear to one and all that their authors are supremely indifferent to any type of social, psychological, or ethical boundary. The assailants strive to impress upon actual and potential victims The literally limitless character of their actions, which exceed all possible imaginings and logic. The violence is extreme, 24 7 and all the time. In this world, no holds are barred and nothing is sacred. In its constant violation of boundaries, it matches the infinitely intrusive character of unregulated global capitalism itself in daily life. Just as it will monetize anything, exchange anything buy anything, exploit anything or anyone, so too in the current harsh climate virtually anyone and anything can be a target of unwanted aggression. When successful, acts of intimidation install a new timeline of perpetual threat through injecting fear of a dreaded fate and ungraspable future into the present. This is what could be called effective virtual politics at its most potent. Trump's singular achievement is to expertly combine these tactics with his own rough brand of highly personal political intimidation, bullying, and fear-mongering, lending them a deeper psychological and effective dimension that perhaps they didn't quite have before. Effective challenges to civic action and activism. I now want to broach a third question. What challenges does this harsh harsh public life present to those engaged in civic action and political activism? First of all in creative effective facts on the ground that are difficult to escape they throw citizens and residents into a fearful angry reactive mode which can be quite isolating and exhausting even for witnesses who weren't explicitly targeted. After all they are potential targets. Such intimidation raises the price of participating in public life. Second, resisting the counter-revolution in the context of of the current toxic uh, public environment requires, I think, a new level of commitment and energy beyond a single issue and beyond a single election cycle. That is, we're in for the long haul. This is precisely what contemporary political intimidation is meant to foreclose that kind of commitment and level of energy. Third, political intimidation presents, in my view, yet other traps and snares as well that can envelop its target, targets. One is straightforward denial of the violence, as in contenting oneself with simply restating abstract principles to do your political work. Another is perhaps the search for simple solutions or silver bullets such as for example impeachment in the hope that it will not only get rid of a sitting president but also put end to the larger culture of bullying intimidation he embodies. Another uh, silver bullet is entrusting political change to a charismatic or telegenic candidate to sustain a political movement over time and renew a political party in the absence of a transformed political uh, infrastructure. In a sense, it's skipping a step. It's not performing, in my view, the political labor that the current moment requires. Then there is indulging in what I would call the nostalgia for the theater of moral shaming that presumably existed in the days of a relatively unified broadcast media sphere. And the the example that comes to mind is that of the old Army of McCarthy hearings of 1954 when I was two years old. So I wasn't (laughs) watching, but I saw the clips uh, um, in my childhood, and, and, um, and uh, if you remember, Joe Welsh was representing the army that, uh, that was under a lot of hostile scrutiny by Joe McCarthy and uh, Roy Cohn, his assistant, and uh, they were in, uh, casting aspersions on the political indiscretions of a young army, I guess, um, uh, the officer. And Joe Welsh said over in front of the TV cameras to McCarthy, have you no sense of decency, sir, at long last? And I'm not a historian of that period, but that was considered the point in which McCarthy's um, uh, reputation began to decline and it began to defang him. Um, so, or finally, one other temptation is to rely on media frenzies to carry the political day. And, uh, and to publicize and educate citizens in the substance of issues that they care about and will continue to care about after Trump has departed. Conclusion The effect of, har- of the harsh political climate is to drain our attention and energy. It is the active discouragement of citizens and residents, in my view, and amounts to a form of suppression of participatory democracy. Here, my last question is what can we do? In terms of activism in a toxic, effectively potent environment, it may help simply to acknowledge that the political transformations I've outlined above require new forms of political organization that nourish and enable commitments of energy for long-term struggle. It's more than just the defeat of a party or of a candidate. It's about uh, transforming our political culture. This is no easy task as there is something incommensurate between the sheer aggressiveness of the counter-revolution in Washington and in state houses and what we as individuals often feel we can possibly do. The question is how to convert our anger and yes, our fear into effective actions. Of course, there have already been many examples of this that I've cited. In my opinion, part of any answer lies in creating strategies and powers of anticipation learning to duck, as it were, and to stand tall at the same time. Crucial to this, in my view, is is, uh, not only mapping the minefields of intimidation, which I hope my book will contribute to, but also coming to terms with our own political vulnerabilities to different kinds of political violence, so as not to be taken by surprise again and again, as seems to be the case of one particular, uh, one party in particular. This is something akin to Earthquake preparedness if you like, <coughs> you know, helps to think ahead. You know? <laughs> um, these, um, this is already happening with Indivisible.org, Swing Left, Swing District Project, Swing, uh, Sister, uh, Sister District Project and so forth. In my view these groups stand somewhere between a social movement and traditional political organizations. This may mean in connection to larger national goals, local goals, uh, connecting local goals. This has the advantage of achieving perhaps quick wins that moreover build trust and solidarity. Here I'm following the example of the group indivisible to which I belong. In many ways it pursues traditional nuts and bolts politics that focuses on governing by pressuring politicians to preserve the legacy of the New Deal and great society. You think there's not much to do in liberal California, but in many respects, California politicians have never faced a level of political intimidation and public bullying in Washington quite like this before, or at least perhaps the current generation of politicians. And they are prone to default, in my view, back to hopeful bipartisanship, even from a severely weakened position. To counter this, the San Francisco chapter of Indivisible has developed a nimble politics of anticipation, meeting weekly for two hours, we plan the next next week's phone calls to politicians and the bi weekly meetings with state directors of the of politicians' staff. It's quite interesting that in all these relationships that have been developed with these staff members. It is a fast and detailed operation. We also meet regularly with state senators and assembly women and men and San Francisco supervisors. And last but not least, we participate in public demonstrations. So why the stre- why is the stress Why why stress the importance of local politics? Here we are perhaps following some of Bernie Sanders' script. In my view, Sanders' original insight is that involvement in politics at the local level and repopulating minor offices with progressives brings street and party politics together, closer together. It is a crucial way to build a new political infrastructure independent of national party politics and to maintain street mobilization over the long haul. Our attention span is short, but this is a long-term project. Unstated by Sanders or by my local indivisible chapter is the fact that this approach in particular has the advantage of freeing the political process from the militaristic and nationalist agendas and free market dogmas that that dominate national debates, operate as major sources of political intimidation and block progressive policies at the federal level. It also frees activism from the hopeful obsession with presidential elections that make political achievement depend on the single electoral outcome or candidate. But they are always uh, quite uh, consequential of course. And the way of anticipo- anticipatory agile politics, there is of course the example of Black Lives Matter that is closer to a social movement and more street oriented. You all may recall that last summer the NRA released a very violent video, I think it was in August, uh, claiming that Jews and blacks were fomenting violence and the only proper response to that was to basically to be violent in return. What Black Lives Matter did was instead of letting this uh, uh, video go virally and through the capillaries of the internet, they came back with a, with a video within 24 hours, within the, at least within the news cycle. They c- and, and that's that kind of rapid response that this sort of situation also requ- requires. But there will be no successful party politics without the direct pressure of street politics. And no successful street politics in my view without some form of political representation and devotion to the nuts and bolts of governing. And both are necessary to undo the current public climate of fear and intimidation and preserve our social and economic protections. The two go together but of course never easily. The real renewal of national life will be among citizens and resi- uh, residents ourselves and is already underway. As I've already cited, um, protesters opposing the Muslim tra- uh, travel ban flooded U.S. Uh, customs and airports. There was the a la- women's march last year that brought out three million people. Black Lives Matter and Our Revolution, an organization created by former Sanders organizers, have forged an activist alliance. And Swing Left and the 6,000 local chapters of Indivisible have, uh, are actively pressuring politicians to resist Trump's political intimidation and acts of government. The unexpected victories in Virginia and also gave us the unexpected victories in Virginia last November, which gave Republican congressional representatives pause for once in these examples our side breaking free of the endless intimidation took the initiative enjoyed the intimidating element of surprise and in so doing we created our own effective facts on the ground thank you